10. All right, let's begin with prayer. Father God, how awesome and amazing and great it is to be known by you, to gather in the company of your saints, to welcome new friends into your word. Lord, I just would ask that in this hour your voice would be heard by all, that you would speak here by your spirit to us collectively and us individually, Lord, that you would do what you have planned to do with your word today. So I pray that you'd also forgive us. We all in this room have fallen short, whether believers or non-believers, there is an element of rebellion that has been present in our week. But we come to you because we trust that you are gracious and kind and merciful and you forgive us. So we're asking that you would, that you cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that you would give us joy and peace on the road, the narrow way, and that you would make us happy there. Because surely we can't be any other way. So, teach us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we arrive at uh, kind of this series of Beatitudes, oftentimes I've mentioned how Jesus identifies himself with us, how he identifies himself with the sins of his people, and kind of begs the question, then are you willing to identify yourself with him? And in meditating on verses 10 through 12 today, I, I thought maybe it'd be helpful to, to start out by asking this. Surely we have a lot of military men and maybe women here today, and I wonder when you were serving in the military, and maybe even now, are you ashamed to be identified as an American? Are, are you ashamed to, to serve for the purposes by which you served the country in the military? Did, did, it, did it concern you or did it upset you that the enemy, whoever that was, whatever that was, uh, knew that you were American? Or were you glad? that you were on this side of things. Now that could get convoluted and messy in some different discussions, but I think for the most part, you're gonna identify in the positive, in the affirmative. And when you're gonna think about verses 10 through 12 here, and how Jesus is speaking of, of being happy and blessed and glad when we're identified with him in the way that makes us suffer on his account, I think you're going to have to ask yourself that 
same question to a greater extent. Am I afraid of being identified with Jesus? Or in all cases and in all circumstances, does that make me happy to be identified with Jesus? And do the things that seek to uh, confirm that, good and bad, do those make me happy because they further confirm to whom I belong and to whom I live for? In other words, one thing that we often say and one thing that the Bible seeks to um, draw out of us is Jesus the greatest treasure? I'm talking greatest treasure above all things, which includes your life, <clears throat> which includes your financial or community standing, which concerns uh, every relationship maybe that you have or have had, are, are, is Jesus' greatest treasure? This is a question that's part of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. If, if you meditate, if you put your life through that kind of filter and look at it through that kind of lens, what do you see? Do things match up there where Jesus is greatest treasure? Do your finances point to Jesus' greatest treasure? Do your, does your time point to Jesus' greatest treasure? Does your response to people, as we looked at last week, uh, reveal that Jesus is your greatest treasure? Obviously, you're not going to perfectly um, identify with that statement every time or through every second of your life. But at least is that your aim, too? At least are you able to humble yourself and be poor in spirit and realize that, that I have to be um, further directed and further molded and see Jesus more clearly to the point that he becomes the greatest treasure above all things so that when I'm confronted with the temptation to view something else as greater than him, to preserve my life, to preserve my finances, to preserve my relationships, that I won't compromise because Jesus is the greatest treasure? I think what you have to identify here in America is that that is, a, that is the question that we have to kind of live in every day. When we're kind of being lulled to sleep by the comfort of life and lulled to sleep by the, uh, by the success that we have and, and, and the good things that we have, are those still nothing compared to the glory of Christ? How about now? When the heat gets turned up and what we're going to look at here in this passage and, and people hate you because you identify with Christ, is he still greatest treasure? You know, if you're having trouble with that, you're in good company because 99% of the apostles, or maybe it works out to 95 because there was 12, right? Uh, uh, did not answer that question well when Jesus was arrested, did they? But something happened after his resurrection, especially after the day of Pentecost, where they could answer it no other way but yes, he is. That's why I like that song that we sing, Is He Worthy? Because it's 100% yes all the time. We just have to preach the gospel to ourselves and read the word 
um, enough and look at him enough and sit at his feet enough to where that becomes perfectly clear to us. That this, this is undeniably true that Jesus is, is worth everything we can throw at his feet. We just don't see that clearly. That's the Christian life, actually, is, is coming to see and identify Jesus more clearly so that we fall more in love with him. There, there is no other response. If you see him, if you can't see him, yeah. What's, it, what's he mean to you? But if by the grace of God you see him, if he's revealed to you in glory, like Saul on the Damascus Road, what will be the response? So my prayer uh, in, in looking at bringing this this week is that you would see him as greatest treasure. Otherwise, you won't be happy in verses 10 and 11 and 12. There's no happiness for you. You're just going to be sorrowful. The, the first part of 2 Corinthians 6.10. You're not going to do the second part of 2 Corinthians 6.10 yet rejoicing. You can't duly exist in both unless you know him as greatest treasure. So the first thing we're going to look at is verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be persecuted is to be or become subject to systematic harassment and attack due to one's religious beliefs. However, that attack manifests itself, right? There's a whole plethora of ways that that can come to you. And certainly you begin to identify more in this time in our nation's history than ever with that definition. What you believe about Jesus and what he has said makes you either an enemy or a friend. And that kind of leaves you dumbfounded because... The gospel is glorious in the grace and mercy of God being extended to people who don't deserve that. And, and we live a life of peace, or we're trying to, as much as we can. And, and we seek to be the same as our Father, benevolent and forgiving and kind and merciful, and people hate it. Well, we're going to figure out in a little bit why that is. But the thing we're concerned about today is not the fact that that happens, that persecution happens. Actually, that's going to be natural in a world uh, that we exist in like we do. That's, that's going to be the normal response. What we're looking at today is the Christian's attitude toward persecution. Just like we looked last week at the Christian's attitude towards injustice, how do we respond? 1 Peter 3, 13 through 18. I want to look at this with you for a minute. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, 
than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Peter there is writing to Christians that have been scattered because of persecution. So the context is in direct relation to those who are being persecuted because of what they believe. And he says, actually, you'll be blessed because of that, or happy because of that, or glad because of that. Why? Because that further identifies you with Jesus. Because you're called at all times to remember how the world identified Jesus. It rejected him. Now, there's, there's also a sorrow in our soul when that takes place, because we, we understand what by people's rejection of Jesus. That they remain under condemnation, and they have not received the good mercy of God. They're dead in their sins and trespasses and remain as enemies or children of wrath. And we hate that. God hates that. I quote Ezekiel 36, I believe, all the time, right? That he does not take pleasure or desire the death of the wicked, but he is committed to justice he is committed to righteousness, and he will meet that out on his enemies, either in their flesh or in the flesh of his son. But he will carry it out. But back to First Peter here, the, the, the communication of Scripture is that trouble, persecution for our faith or our identification with Jesus is part of life here. The comfort is that if you are in Christ, these things will happen to you, but what's, what's the overarching greater reality above that? You're in Christ, which means you get the inheritance that he gets as the Son of God. Eternal dwelling in the glory of the Father that is free from all sin all despair, all persecution. You may, Christian, have it uh, as a natural desire in your heart to not be persecuted. I identify with that. But understand that is a promise directly to you in Christ at a later date. And we have to identify with the heart of Jesus who endured the shame of the cross for the glory that was set before him. Amen? So the constant meditation on the gospel that has to take place in your life is a pointing forwards to what is promised to you in eternity. We'll look at that in Hebrews 10 in just a minute, but first, 1 John 3-11, through 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Okay, so we're making this clear. There's, there's always a, a contrast, especially when John writes, either in his gospel or either in his uh, letters here, there's a, there's a contrast between dark and light. 
good and evil. Where do you think that whole plot line for every single story, book, or movie you've ever read or watched came from? The reality of a fallen world and the Creator's existence. You are going to have a clash with darkness and light at all times. And so John says, don't be surprised by that. That's going to be what it's like when light comes in and exposes the darkness. And he says that in the first chapter of his gospel. When he's speaking about Jesus, he says that. He says light came into the world, but he was rejected, hated, because darkness hates the light. Hebrews 10, 32 through 34, but recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So the, the crazy thing about this passage is you're like, how are you supposed to be happy in persecution? That's not a good thing, right? Uh, so what, what do you, what blessed, rejoicing, what is this? Well, before you move into Hebrews 11 and the people that, had, that, are, that are notified for their faith in God, you, you kind of set the stage with this. Even though, at times, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, or were identified with those who were mistreated, or had things taken from you that you couldn't do anything about. You were joyful about it because there's a better possession, not only a temporary type of possession, but an abiding possession, an eternal possession for you waiting. It's kind of like how, how God laughs kind of throughout the scriptures and the Psalms and Proverbs of those who come up with these great schemes against him or great schemes against humanity to do evil things, they have no clue what's coming. They have no clue that they only exist under the sovereign eye and control of the Lord. They have no clue what kind of danger they're in. And they have no clue about eternity. They're, they're, they're temporal thinking beings. We're not called to be that. We're called to recognize and remember that there is something for us that exists forever, where moth or rust cannot destroy, where a thief cannot break in and steal, Jesus says. This is yours, held in the presence of God, and nobody takes things that are God's. It's, it's really hard, right? I, I tell this to the boys sometimes. We, we have never existed eternally. We only exist in time right now. Born at a certain year. Maybe some of you don't want to say it. But we, we just can't wrap our minds around what it means to have day after day after day that does not ever find a last day. And that's probably a good thing that God is bigger and has created something bigger for us than we can comprehend. Which should put everything into perspective by how you live and think about your living here. 
So if you want to be like those that have been recorded for all time in the Bible in regards to their faith, then think about what is yours eternally in Christ. That's it. And if you find that that is greater, more valuable, even brings you the most joy, then you've got it. And you keep moving forward in that until it's so all-encompassing that it just spills out of you, oozes out of you, explodes out of you, that the glory of God is reflected off of you, kind of like Moses coming down from Mount Sinai, and people just can't even handle that. Notice that he says in verse 10 that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can go back to verse 3 and see that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you, but as far as I know, I'm not an heir to like any country or throne. But understand that he's promised those poor in spirit, those broken, humble sinners, those who are persecuted because they love and follow the Lord, he's promised them a kingdom, the reward. What about verse 11? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. These are perceived faults that people see in you, even ones that they make up. Like he just said, falsely on my account. You know, throughout history, Christians have been accused of cannibalism, uh, bigotry, inciting hate. I mean, you name it. They've, they've twisted all the gospel to, to make Christians the bad guy. Because light exposes darkness. So those that have been changed and redeemed by the gospel, those who hold to the gospel, those who live in the gospel, who those who have a gospel hope, are going to be those who just by their nature expose the works of darkness. And how do you think the darkness is going to respond? By trying to extinguish the light. What, what, what's comforting about that is that it's impossible to do. It's just like pouring gasoline on a candle. I mean, you're just going to spread it. And that's what church history has really shown us. Which is what? A fulfillment of the promise of Jesus to build his church and not even the gates of Hades will prevail against it. You see that there is one king and one Lord and one sovereign. Hebrews 11.26, we're getting to Moses here. I shared this at Brenda's funeral because I, I think this was her heart's um, direction and it should be ours. He considered the reproach of Christ. This is Moses identifying himself with the Hebrew people even though he was 
in Pharaoh's household. At one point in time, he now decides he's going to identify with his natural-born people, the people of God. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Well, treasures of Egypt sounds like a reward, right? I get to have all this power and play around in this great household and have all these servants and all this sort of stuff. Do you understand that what, what is eternally promised to you and I transcends anything in the created order of things? Whether kingdoms or riches or power and authority, all of that is, is garbage. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, it's rubbish compared to what's coming. So if you believe in the reward that's yours in Christ, everything else gets put in perspective. Which, side note here, you should probably spend some time meditating on that reward. Read of the glories of heaven. Read of the goodness of God. Read of what Jesus promises in the presence of his disciples while he's here on earth. Fall in love with him over and over again so that his presence becomes the desire of your heart. I have a book that I recommend to well, everybody right now, but sometimes I give it away and recommend it to people all the time. It's called God is the Gospel. God is the good news. He has given himself, which we're going to look at Friday night. He gave himself to you. Who is he? You answer that. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 16. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Do you see how cohesive the scripture is on what it's like to suffer for Christ? They always tell us don't be troubled by it, right? Because that's the natural response when persecuted. They said, no, don't do that. Instead, what? Look to Christ, our reward. Look at him. And continue to follow him, even when they're asking you, in maybe very, very aggressive ways to give a response, gentleness, respect. So that you're not going to be put to shame in Christ. They're not going to be able to deny what they're seeing from you, right? Peter and John, Acts 4. Well, we know this at least, that they've been with Jesus. Now, there's some negative connotation of that from those who are reviling, but that's really the best thing that can be said. 
And when he talks here about being put to shame, understand that that doesn't, that's not an earthly context in shame. They're going to shame us. I mean, the, Jesus is hanging on a cross, naked. Roman citizens don't get to do that. That's too, that's too low. That's too shameful. He's talking about before the one who can destroy both body and soul and hell. You don't want to be put to shame there. I'm telling you. Th- that is, he is the greatest fear that we should have in all the universe. And the more that you come to see him, the more you come to understand that. What else is there to fear? God, at any moment, can do anything. That's good and right and just according to the counsel of his own will. He doesn't have to consult anybody. What he decides, because he's perfectly good and perfectly right, he'll do. I like, I like this in verse 11. It talks about suffering these things falsely on his account. And when I hear that, I, just, I can't get out of my head kind of the, the, the financial um, wordage there. His account. You're, you're not incurring shame and reproach for him or for yourself when you're suffering on his account. But what's on his account? Righteousness. Perfection. So you, you, can't, you can't debit his account by shame or reviling. He is rich in grace and mercy. He, he brings to us his complete righteousness. He gives it out of his account. And it cancels all our debt. So your suffering on his account, it's endless. It's endless. His, his righteousness is endless. So you, you can't be taken outside of that by the persecution. No, instead, it just further confirms whose account you're living on, right? If uh, one of these wealthy men in the world gave you their credit card, you would be living on their account. You'd put everything on that, right? Hey, Jesus gives you his righteousness, put it on that. Live on that. John 15, 20 through 21, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. They don't view the full, perfect, unending righteousness of Jesus as a great treasure. Because they don't know God. They don't know the riches and grace that he poured out in sending Jesus. So they don't value the currency that he deals in. Right? They value Power, self-righteousness, their viewpoint of good and bad, not the creator's. 
all these things. They don't value the current currency that God deals in, and actually the currency which is going to be the standard for the kingdom that's to come. So, verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So think about, um, you're in good company. I mean, that's where, you're, that's where you're supposed to be. Like, I'm, okay, I'm in good company, I guess. It's, it's comforting to know, as Peter tells in his letter, that your brothers and sisters throughout time and, and throughout the world have suffered the very same things on account of Jesus. So what's the common denominator between all these people that are experiencing the same kinds of suffering and various kinds of suffering throughout the world and throughout time? Well, the common denominator is they're all in Christ. And that means that the temporary, momentary suffering is light affliction compared to the glory that is to come. So they're all looking ahead to something else. You know, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's astounding that, that when you define rejoice and be glad, you, you get this definition of extreme happiness and gladness. That is not where we expected this to go. And in fact, we get a little, if we're honest with ourselves, irritated that Jesus is telling us while we're in the midst of suffering and struggle and heartache and injustice that we're supposed to be glad, extremely happy and glad. Are you kidding me, Jesus? Do you know what I'm going through? And then what's he say? Look at the cross. Of course. But you have to look where Jesus looks to the glory that's his and subsequently ours in him. Th this is a characteristic, as with all these things in the Sermon on the Mount, a characteristic of kingdom people. Acts 5, 41 through 42. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This is Peter and some of the other disciples right, that have been, uh, again, brought into custody for proclaiming and for healing, and again told to stop it, and again responding with, well, we can't, so do what you think is right to us, because we can't stop this, it's going to happen, and then they beat them, and they set them loose, and what's that cause them to do? Rejoice! And we're dumbfounded. Except we're not, because they saw through that. That the people that were beating them, the people that were telling them to shut their mouths, were doing so on account of Jesus, who they crucified. So if they are identifying Peter and the other disciples with him, what's that mean? We're in Christ. Our reward is great in heaven and transcends Anything that we experience here. Therefore, thank you. You've helped my faith grow. Verse 42, 
And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. I thought that that was supposed to have the opposite effect. No. Never. Even in the sense that they recognize that those people who beat them, those people who threaten them, need this gospel. Right? We are supposed to look at our enemies in that light. Bless your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Well, Lord, I don't think that sounds like a good idea. Okay, well, he did it. And if he's God, if he's perfect, if he's good, if he's righteous, if he's just, then maybe you should follow in kind. Because isn't it more glorious to see one of these enemies like Saul was, like Paul was, uh, be redeemed than to just see them die in their sins? I don't, we shouldn't want that. We know what he can do with the gospel. We know. So we don't have to be ashamed of it, like Paul says in Romans, 8, or Romans 1, 16. Romans 5, 1 through 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That should be glorious. Then we move on. Through him we have also obtained access by the faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, but God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So what is countercultural, what is, what is not like the world, which you don't want to be like, right? Because th there's condemnation for the enemies of God. But look, the thing about us is that we rejoice at all times, in all things. Even when we have this unjust persecution on account of Jesus, people can't see how good he is, can't see how good this message is, can't understand or embrace the truth. Even in that, we rejoice. Now look at how he started Romans 5 with a brief meditation on what's yours in Christ. Peace with God, access into his grace, and hope in the glory of God. You have to be there, solid, treasuring that above all else, so that you rejoice in the, in the sufferings. Knowing that even that is couched under that Romans 8.28 idea of everything working for your good in his glory, so that your suffering produces something, that is of eternal value. This, this is the benefit that you have as a Christian. Every part of your life, even when you're disciplined for your sin, is being used for your good. Like, he is not going to stop doing good to you. <laughs> even when you're just being foolish, he's not going to stop doing good to you. How do you understand that? Well, in a very small way, you discipline your children for their good because you're looking forward to what they will become on our becoming. So don't punch your brother in the face because I want you to enjoy 
good relationships. I want you to be known as somebody who loves, who builds up, who, who gives, who protects. Not as somebody who hurts. I, I, you, you have to be blown away by the fact that, that God will not withhold any good thing from you. Even in your pain. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I was uh, just the Lord. The Lord's providence is amazing when you think about it. In some weird way, I was connected with this pastor in Switzerland this week. It's just odd. And I listened to one of his sermons, and they have a bunch of Ukrainian refugees in their midst. And the way that he comforted them with this kind of truth was astounding. The way that he carefully applied the word to their situation and let them know that your uh, displacement from your home, the, the stuff that you've suffered uh, under this circumstance was, was for your good. That you don't have to discount the goodness of God, that you don't have to uh, doubt in your faith, but that you have to embrace what he is giving you through this. That's the, the, the mind shift, the heart shift that we're looking for in the Christian life is to see all things as being used for our good and his glory. And I can't get to the end of that because I'm not him. And I can't perfectly explain how everything's going to fit together and how everything is doing that in our midst. But I know that he does it. He's given me too many examples. He's done it every single time. And, and by the way, he gave us the greatest example that we're going to look to Friday and this weekend by doing that through the cross. The worst thing that has ever taken place in history actually took place under his sovereign hand and plan for the greatest thing that's ever taken place in history. If, if the reality of the cross is true, vindicated by the resurrection three days later, then why do we discount that anything that takes place in this life is going to be also used for our good. Does he not have that power? You need to get mad at yourself once in a while when you start believing that he can't do that. Because that's a lie. Think about the parable in Matthew 21, the parable of the tenants, right? <laughs> Jesus is telling them, there was a master who planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and dug a, a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And then he went away in another country. He sends one by one, I won't read the whole thing to you, but he sends one by one uh, people, servants, to, to make sure everything is going the way that he desires or the, the, is following his command. What do they do? Well, they beat one. They killed one. They stoned one. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, 
Let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Now, he's saying this in the presence of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and this is their response. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. A couple of verses later, they perceive that he's talking about them. I sent you Isaiah. I sent you John the Baptist. And then I sent you Jesus. Whose blood guilt is on whose hands? It's those people that he's talking to, those religious elite. So it's not that he's going to keep you from persecution. It's not that that won't happen to those that he sends. And if you're a Christian, you're sent. It's that he will at all times give you good. He'll grow your faith. He'll grow your hope. He'll grow your desire for him and your lack of desire for this world. And we'll end with this. James 5, 10 through 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We're called to understand and embrace the goodness of God in the midst of our struggle even if the devil himself is persecuting, like Job, we're supposed to look at our big, awesome God and realize that everything that happens happens under his sovereign hand. And I hope you join us Friday and Sunday because we're going to see the greatest example of that that has ever taken place. So my goal for today was to at least, by the Spirit, move you in the direction of not focusing on the fact that persecution happens, but move you closer into looking at the glory of God in the face of Jesus, which will provide you everything you need to endure. This is the great effort that Satan gives his existence to, blinding the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So if you've been given that look, that reality, then look. And if you haven't, my prayer is for you. So I pray you respond to him.